This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Monday, November 6th. On the pod today, more than 400 Canadians and their family members are still stuck in war-torn Gaza, desperate to flee as rockets rain down from Israel. We hear from Canada's ambassador to Egypt on why Canadians are still waiting. Plus, cancel the carbon tax on all home heating. That's the consensus coming from premiers meeting today in Halifax. We'll hear from two of them about what they want to see happen. And the power panel weighs in on some bad polling numbers for the federal Liberals. We begin in Israel, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is resisting pressure to pause his war on Hamas. While Israel is doing everything in its power to get the civilians out of harm's way, Hamas is doing everything in its power to keep them in harm's way, sometimes at gunpoint. So we will act, and not only in our right of self-defense, but in defending our common values uh, and our uh, future. This was the scene today in central Gaza where an Israeli airstrike hit a refugee camp. Women and children fled the scene. Others searched the rubble for survivors. Dozens of Palestinians were reportedly killed. Now, the assault on Gaza began a month ago after Hamas launched a surprise attack on southern Israel, killing 1,400 people and taking more than 240 hostages. The CBC's Ellen Morrow joins us from southern Israel, about 10 kilometers from Gaza. So, Ellen, you're about as close as you can get to Gaza. What have you been seeing and hearing all day? Well, David, that's Gaza there in the distance behind me. It's dark right now. Of course, electricity has been cut off uh, to Gaza throughout this war. But throughout the evening that we've been here, we've heard the heavy booms of artillery fire. We've heard airstrikes. We've seen explosions in the distance. We've heard heavy uh, machine gun fire, all part of the intensifying Israeli offensive uh, into Gaza. It's eerie to, to listen to and see from here really hard to imagine what it would be like for civilians uh, inside. We've heard from the Israeli military throughout the day updating us on what's been happening with the offensive. You don't know if you heard that that large boom just there. Uh, it says that troops today killed another top Hamas commander that Israel says uh, helped plan the October 7th attacks uh, in this country. It also says that troops discovered rocket launching positions near a mosque. Again, saying that Hamas uses civilian infrastructure to to shield uh, its positions and its fighters. Uh, we're almost a month into this war, David, and every day the toll on civilians in Gaza becomes more uh, devastating. In the past few days, we've seen strikes uh, in refugee camps. We've seen a strike damage an ambulance, uh, one near a hospital, uh, several UN facilities, UN-run shelters have been damaged. Israel has commented on many of those strikes, saying that it's targeting Hamas uh, militants and infrastructure in response to the October 7th attacks. But the images that come out of those strikes are really hard to watch. Bodies being pulled out of the rubble, uh, children being rushed to hospital uh, for treatment. Really devastating scenes for civilians. The Gaza uh, Health Ministry, which is run by Hamas, says that now more than 10,000 people in Gaza have been killed in the fighting, including more than 4,000 children. And this could just continue to intensify in the coming days. 
days, David. Uh, Israel, uh, the Israel Defense Forces says its troops are pushing further and further into Gaza City. Uh, Israel again called on civilians to leave the north of Gaza to go to the south. Aid agencies have said there is no safe place in the Gaza Strip with strikes still happening in the south as well, that for many people it's impossible to do that evacuation route. And we heard from a U.S. official over the weekend estimating that there's still between 300,000 to 400,000 people in Gaza City. And that's where uh, it's expected that the most intense fighting will come in the next several days. Okay, so Ellen, you mentioned uh, some of the strikes on UN facilities or near UN facilities. Uh, We've heard from the head of the United Nations today. What did Antonio Guterres have to say? Well, strong words from Antonio Guterres uh, condemning Hamas, again, repeating the accusation from Israel that Hamas uh, is using civilians as human shields and also saying that the constant bombardment that we've seen of Gaza needs to stop. Here's a bit more of what he had to say. Gaza is becoming a graveyard for children. I'm deeply concerned about clear violations of international humanitarian law that we are witnessing. Let me be clear. No party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law. So Guterres also uh, calling for there to be an immediate ceasefire in this conflict. It comes after we had a rare joint statement from the heads of major U.N. uh, agencies put out today uh, as well, saying enough is enough, also calling for there to be an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. Uh, We know that Israel is under pressure. Antony Blinken had a weekend of shuttle diplomacy in the region calling for there to be a pause in the fighting. There was a call tonight between U.S. President Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, where they reportedly talked about tactical pauses in the fighting to get humanitarian aid uh, into Gaza. But publicly, at least, it doesn't seem like we're any closer to there being a ceasefire in this conflict. Benjamin Netanyahu spoke publicly uh, again tonight, describing this fight against Hamas as a fight against barbarism, saying that Israel has to win, has to dismantle Hamas after the October 7th attacks, David. But certainly it is under growing pressure from the international community and growing pressure from its most important ally, the U.S. All right, Ellen, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Ellen Morrow in southern Israel. Hundreds of Canadians in Gaza remain trapped. The Canadian government indicated last week that departures could begin as early as Sunday, but the Rafah border crossing was closed this weekend after a disagreement arose between the parties that control who gets in and who gets out. The crossing reopened today, but only to Egyptians and foreign nationals whose names appeared on previously released approved departure lists. Azia Mafkour is a Canadian who remains stuck in Gaza. She's there with her husband, two young children, parents, and extended family. She told us last week that some of her family is on the list of Canadians who have been approved to leave Gaza. So we checked back in with her today. I don't know if we're going to make it, to be honest, uh, to cross because everything is very complicated. Nobody knows on the ground what the situation is. Uh, I just spoke to some um, people I know are at the borders now and uh, till now they haven't crossed they haven't entered the uh, Egyptian side they're still waiting to be called we also don't know how safe it's going to be to reach Rafah's uh, uh, borders and we don't know uh, if uh, my husband or my mother-in-law would be able to uh, safely pass with us I'm also so devastated that um, my father uh, won't leave. He's refusing to leave tomorrow or to leave Gaza. 
he's saying that he does not want to leave his brothers and sisters and all of our family and he's very he will be very torn apart to leave them um, I'm not sure what to expect tomorrow to be honest it's gonna be chaos it's gonna be scary terrifying and even exhausting uh, given that I have two young children we will have to leave from as early as 7 a.m. so imagine people are till now since 7 a.m. stuck um, in the borders there's a possibility we will not pass tomorrow because now the people that are on the list today they're going to have to try tomorrow again oh god this is just no no it's just a, a, a nightmare another nightmare Global Affairs Canada says it is in touch with 600 Canadians and their family members in Gaza. Louis Dumas is Canada's ambassador to Egypt. I spoke with him earlier today from Cairo. Ambassador, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So as we understand it, as we're speaking, the Rafah border crossing reopened today, but no Canadians or their family members will be able to get out today on Monday. Can you confirm that? Is that where things stand? Yeah, that's correct. It's uh, currently uh, 7.30 in the evening here in Cairo. So luckily, we're very happy to, to see the border reopen today. Uh, as you know, it was closed for a few days. But uh, in the next few days, at the very least, we hope to see a flow of foreign nationals coming from Gaza into Egypt. Okay, so the hope was that Canadians would start getting out on Sunday and, and be mostly done by today, maybe by Tuesday. What, what is the updated timeline? Do you have any clarity as to when Canadians might finally be able to start moving out of Gaza and into Egypt? So if we go back to Saturday, as you pointed out, David, you know, we were scheduled to, uh, for the first uh, cohort of Canadians to come on, uh, on Sunday. So we were told by our contacts that 200 Canadians will be coming on Sunday and 216 on Monday. Because, you know, the uh, disagreement on the, at the border between the different uh, groups, the, between the different, uh, I would say, uh, decision makers, uh, the border was stopped for a few days, and then it has created a backlog. But Canada is still in the mix, you know, to receive its nationals within the next few days. Okay, uh, uh, there's a few things there I want to go through. So the 200 and 216, is that what you said the next day? So 416 people in total, would that be correct? That's what we, uh, originally, when the, uh, we were talking to the Egyptian contacts, they mentioned that they would have, Canada would have two groups coming in, a first group of 200 and then a group of 216. Okay. However, because the, the border was closed for a few days, I think we will need to talk to the, uh, our contacts here in Egypt and also our embassy in Israel will have to talk to their contacts and to realign you know, the numbers. But rest assured, we're working extremely hard here in Cairo, in the region and in Ottawa to uh, expedite you know, the exit of Canadians from, from Gaza into Egypt. Okay, so on the math there, though, Ambassador, that would be about 416 people under the original plan. I know you say that needs to, to be recalibrated based on updated information. But we've seen numbers from yeah. Global Affairs. There's at least 450, 460, maybe 500 people in Gaza. So can you explain that gap? And we've also seen that you're in contact with up to 600 Canadians, permanent residents, and their family members in Gaza. So what happens to the other 100, 180 that, that, that aren't part of that list? It's, it's a very large group. I mean, definitely, we the, the, the numbers are changing almost every day. There's new people calling us and wanting to be added on the list. But we work very closely with the Egyptians here in Cairo. 
Our partners in Tel Aviv, our embassy in Tel Aviv works very closely with, uh, with uh, the, the Israeli government. And uh, essentially, let's say, to make it simple, the, the number that is, uh, that is talked about, you know, in respect to the number of Canadians, permanent residents, and family members is around 450. So that number is in flux, you know, almost every day. So it's really hard to pinpoint a number. But rest assured, those who have registered with Canada have reached out to our watch office in Ottawa, have been put on the list, and we're pushing hard in uh, making sure that these individuals be expedited from Gaza into Egypt. One of our colleagues at Radio Canada is reporting that the Gaza Border Authority is saying they have yet to receive from the Egyptian Foreign Ministry the list containing the names of the Canadians who are allowed to leave Gaza. Do, do you know what's going on there? Well, I mean, sometimes there's some, there's a lot of information. It depends, you know, you have to go to reliable sources. But I can guarantee you that the Egyptian authorities have received the list from Canada. Okay, but do you know if Egypt has shared it with the Gaza officials? Because as I understand this, sir, there's a lot of players involved in this. Do you know if it's yeah. gone from Egypt into Gaza, so they would know which Canadians are allowed to get out? But if you take a step back, you know, Gaza is controlled by the Israeli forces. And uh, essentially, Israel is the, is the, the point of contact with the, along with Egypt in sharing the information. But for all in, intents and purposes, from our perspective, it has been shared. And uh, if it had not been shared, why would have they put a number of Canadians on the list to be, uh, to be coming out of Gaza into Egypt? So therefore, I believe it has been shared, and I'm very confident about that. Okay, so can you help me understand how, how, who decides and how it's decided who gets out? Because obviously you have a list of people you're advocating for. Uh, these people would yeah. be going into Egypt, so clearly Egypt plays a role. But Israel has a role here because of security concerns on who may or may not be coming out of Gaza. And then I would assume on the other side, the Gaza border authority, which is controlled by Hamas, also has a role. So can you walk me through the process here, sir, of like... Who actually decides yes or no uh, on who gets out? So essentially, as I pointed out, the lists have been shared. So there's no question about that. So the original, I would the, the, the list of individuals to be coming out of Gaza and into Egypt is decided between Israel and Egypt. And then the list is provided to the, uh, to the Palestinian immigration services to allow people to get out. So it's, uh, as you point out, it's very complicated, There's a lot of players involved, but rest assured, we're working every possible channel to put, you know, our priority forward and working and making sure that people come as soon as possible. So, so as a Canadian diplomat, you're stuck in a situation where, and, and this is not a criticism in any way, it's just the reality of it, where Israel or Egypt could say no uh, to you for a specific name or a specific number or name or a specific cohort getting in or out uh, for whatever reason is in their interest at the moment. It's always a possibility, but I have to emphasize we've had great cooperation on both sides of the border. You know, Israel has been really, really helpful in making sure that uh, we had, they received the list from Canada. Same for Egypt. And I have to commend Egypt, you know, in my role as ambassador of Canada to Egypt, for their role in assisting us in, in having Canadians come through. And also, it's a, I have to, we have pursued, we have forgotten that not too long ago, Egypt was dealing with a major crisis in the south, in Sudan. And again, Egypt has been stellar at helping, you know, Canada and in bringing individuals of interest to Canada to Egypt so we can send them forward to, to Canada.
And again, in this scenario, you know, they're doing the same. I wonder, Ambassador, if you could shed some light on exactly why the, the border crossing was closed. There were reports, um, most I saw in American media, I believe, first, that Hamas tried to slip some wounded fighters out on a list uh, through the Rafah border, and so Israel insisted on it being shut down. But we're also seeing reports from Reuters and others that Egypt um, uh, closed it because they wanted guarantees that Israel wouldn't aim at any more ambulance convoys. And the decision to target the ambulance convoy, even though they said there was Hamas fighters in, the, in an ambulance, was at the heart of this. What explanation have you received? What do you know to be the reason why the border crossing has clo- been closed for a couple of days? No, I think it's a, it's a very fair question. Uh, so in the process of bringing individuals from Gaza into Egypt, so we have to think that there's two processes. There's an exit process and an entry process. The exit process, essentially, as you pointed out, ultimately is, uh, I would say, administered by the Palestinian immigration. And there is an, en- an entry process into Egypt. And rightly so, Egypt is well within its right to decide who comes to its territory and who does not. In the case at hand a few days ago when the border was closed, from what we hear, it's a number of individuals were, that were um, pushed forward by Hamas, you know, and they proposed that these individuals would go and get uh, medical services in Egypt, to which Israel disagreed and Egypt disagreed. So therefore, Hamas said, no one will get out until our people get out. And that was the conundrum. And that's was the point of... Uh, of uh, no go. But again, Egypt, being very sensitive to the issue, has dispatched his Minister of Health to, uh, to Rafa, has dispatched his Governor of North Sinai to Rafa, and tried to resolve the situation. I'm very happy. We hear that uh, there is movement currently at, uh, at the border in Rafa, and that's a very good sign. So, so, Ambassador, just as a final point, uh, and I appreciate there's a lot of people looking to get out uh, through one exit in difficult circumstances, but we've seen our other G7 allies, the U.S., U.K., France, Germany, Italy, Japan, they've been able to get some departures uh, of their nationals. Why is it Canada has, been a, has not been able to do the same at this point? Well, Canada was on the list. I mean, we were on the list to have people come through. Uh, I think it's uh, with the border closure, I think that things were got delayed. But keep in mind, there's 60 countries here in Egypt waiting for their nationals to come through. So up until the time that the border was closed, only 50% of those 60, 60 countries had managed to get people across the border. And among the countries that did not have people come across the border, you have countries like Norway, Sweden, New Zealand, and Romania that has a very large component of uh, individuals in Gaza. So I would not read too much into it. But if I may, Canada is really, really doing its darnest, you know, to make the operation a success. At the meeting this morning, I was sitting in a room with 40 people from different departments, led by Global Affairs, led by uh, the Canadian Forces, uh, people coming from different departments like Immigration and Refugee Citizenship Canada, uh, Canada Border Services Agency, Public Safety. And people are all committed in having uh, people... Uh, of interest to Canada coming from Gaza into uh, into Egypt. It's going to be a very difficult operation, but Canada is totally committed in bringing these people home. And we have to keep in mind as well that right. the Northern Sinai is not an easy area. It's a, an area that's been uh, where Canada has said to Canadians, please do not go to North Sinai for the past 10 years. It's a very, very difficult area. 
And then when we get to Rafa, you know, we'll dispatch our teams to Rafa, get the Canadians permanent residents and, uh, and uh, family members. We'll bus them all the way from uh, Rafa to Cairo. That's an, about a six to eight hour trek. And then we'll come, when they'll arrive here, we will take care of them. We will give them shelter, food, medical services as well. And we'll make sure they get to Canada as early as possible because Egypt is only giving us 72 hours. So I just want to emphasize, you know, the, the efforts done by Canada and reassure your viewers that we're doing everything that we can to bring them home. Louis Dumas, Canada's ambassador to Egypt. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Okay, before that interview with Ambassador Dumas, we, we played you a clip from Azia Mathkor, who's a Canadian who remains stuck in Gaza. She's on the list of Canadians approved to leave, but doesn't know if that will happen tomorrow. Well, just before this show started, we got another message from Azia. Have a listen to this. It's just now, a huge bomb just right next to us. Um, it's very tough. It's a very tough night here at Rafah right now. It's a very tough night at Rafah today. I really hope we make it. Oh my God. Okay, you could hear her say off the top that a bomb dropped uh, very close to where her and her family are seeking shelter. We're going to continue to stay in touch with Azia as best we can and bring you any updates as we get them. A conservative motion to pause the carbon tax on all home heating in Canada has failed to pass in the House of Commons. All of Trudeau's MPs sold out their constituents and voted to make their home heating more expensive. In a rare move, the NDP mostly supported the Conservative motion, but the Liberals, Bloc and Green Party MPs all voted against it. A Liberal MP is being accused of giving Conservatives the finger during the vote. Mr. Long. Mr. Longfield. Mr. McDonald Avalon. Mr. Morrissey. And the member from Avalon literally gave the finger to those Canadians as he stood to vote uh, for our motion, which was to give them a break and a reprieve on home heating costs. I scratched the side of my head with two fingers. So if they think it's one finger, that's up to them. They can take it how they like. Meanwhile, provincial and territorial leaders are unanimously calling for the Prime Minister to ensure federal policies are delivered in a fair and equitable way for all Canadians. That's after the federal government announced a three-year carbon tax exemption for home heating oil, which many provinces call unfair. The issue isn't the policy, uh, it's, the, it's how the policy is being applied and up until now largely has been somewhat fairly applied across the nation. I, I don't think anyone can say this uh, today. If we just could have got away from this very rigid political doctrine that we have to do this and it has to be across the board for this broad country that we have that's so diverse uh, and different, I think we could have avoided this outcome. The Premiers gathered in Halifax today for a meeting that was intended to be focused on health care, but was dominated by discussion around the carbon tax. The Premier of Nova Scotia and the Chair of the Council of the Federation, Tim Houston, joins me now. Premier, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, I remember not that long ago there was a climate consensus on moving towards carbon pricing, and now there seems to be a consensus to move away from it, at least when it comes to home heating uh, sources of all kinds. That seems to be the primary demand coming out of this meeting today. Where, where are the premiers on this now? 
Yeah, so look, everybody, we all understand the climate is changing for sure. We know that governments have an obligation, citizens have an obligation to preserve the planet for future generations. There's no, no question about any of that. But there's lots of discussion about the best way to do that. And, and certainly here in, in Nova Scotia and Atlantic Canada, I've advocated hard for, you know, to, to make the argument to the federal government that the carbon tax, it just doesn't work in, in Nova Scotia just because of the nature of our, of our province. So we've been, we've been trying to advance that argument in a methodical, uh, respectful way for, for a couple of years, certainly as long as I've been here. But so, so recently with the carve out for home heating oil, I mean, in Atlantic Canada, we're, 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 we're happy that that's a good first step, but obviously we're, we're, you know, a lot of my colleagues raise the issue that it's, it's just inherently unfair. Um, and it's, it's doing, it's, it's very divisive right now. So I, I, I agree with them. Uh, all Canadians have to heat their homes. Um, so I think what the federal government done, has done here is, is problematic. I, I'd ask them to address that for sure. But ultimately, I, I just believe that there's really no, no need for the carbon tax, certainly not in a place like Nova Scotia. So even though they've made a first step here for home heating oil, I'd like them to go all the way and just, just remove the carbon tax uh, and work with us on other ways uh, that we can be more effective in, in our protection of the planet, but but premiers were pretty united that it's 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 not appropriate to to treat uh, Canadians differently in the, in the way they heat their home. Right, uh, and look, uh, people keep calling it an Atlantic Canadian program. It is a national program. There's actually more people in Ontario and the West that, that use oil than there is in all of Atlantic Canada, though I accept it was driven by the Atlantic Caucus of the Liberal Party. But do you understand why they would want to do that? When you look at the price to fill up a tank of oil, like you're talking three to four to five times as much as it is to use natural gas to heat a home. I mean, it is the most expensive fuel source out there. Yeah, we, I mean, we certainly feel that in, in, in Atlantic Canada and Nova Scotia, where there's, you know, a, a lot of people still using home heating oil. We, we've made uh, significant investments in programs to help them transition to another heating source. But, but you know, the, the reality is, is that, you know, we're, we're Canadians. Our, our climate is such that we have to heat our homes. No matter where you live in this great country, you're going to heat your home in the wintertime. And um, the, I, I agree with my, with my colleagues that say we should all be treated uh, fairly in, in the same manner um, with respect to the carbon tax around how we heat our homes it's uh so look i i think that this is a this is this has caused a, it's become a divisive issue um at a time when we need unity in, in our country in so many ways this is this is doing the opposite and i would encourage the, the, the federal government to to take a look at you know the the, the issues that they're causing and the and the and the and the, and the bad feelings but they're, they're rightly uh, that people are rightly feeling. I, I'm sure you've heard, though, uh, Premier, the Prime Minister, the Environment Minister, the Natural Resources Minister, even the Atlantic Regional Minister say no more carve-outs. You know, policies sometimes need to be tweaked because of acute pressures in a specific area or a specific class of people. Uh, even with the, the sort of unanimity by the Premiers today, it, it sounds like the federal Liberals are done tweaking the carbon tax. It, it's it's sounded like that before as well, but um, look, uh, I think like in our case, in the case of Nova Scotia, we, we we've been presenting reasoned arguments and in, in, as I say, a respectful, methodical way uh, for two years, and now you know maybe a breakthrough uh, two year two years on, and and people will have their own thoughts on what what drove that breakthrough, whether it's the polls or whether it's the reality 
of you know how, how punitive the carbon tax is here. Who, who knows what, the, what what caused the breakthrough? But I hope it is just an initial breakthrough, and that there are more to come. No, I, I take your point. That has certainly sounded that way in the past, and, and here we are. I, I wanted to switch to something else that's in your in, in the communique that the premiers released, and you're talking about infrastructure and programs. I'm assuming like the housing accelerator, where the federal government is dealing directly with municipal governments and in other areas dealing with provincial agencies, which would fall into your jurisdiction. It, it seems like there's I don't want to know if the threat is too strong a word, but if provinces adopting legislation that would prevent that, that would stop municipalities and agencies from cutting deals directly with the federal government, wouldn't that slow down some of the work they're trying to get done on, on things like housing? Well, I think it would probably speed things up, to be honest, to, to work uh, you know, with the provinces in, in, in an upfront manner. You know, to, to, to try to do an end around around the, around the provincial governments and to deal direct with other organizations. I mean, the, the, the reality in a, in a province like Nova Scotia is, you know, the provincial government is, is generally going to be involved in these in these types of initiatives. So they should be involved early on in the discussions. I mean, we, we have uh, we, we, we've seen examples where the, the federal government has has tried to work with a, a municipality and it just it just it just can't happen without the provincial government. So so why try to structure something like that, doing an end around and cutting the provincial government out? They should be working with the provincial governments. Uh, it takes all three levels of government to get these projects across the line in most cases. So so let's acknowledge that up front. Uh, and let, let's we, we want to be partners. We want to be honest and, and, and fair partners. We want housing for sure. Uh, so so we should just work together on that up front. And and I think what what we saw what we had a discussion on, on today was uh, in Quebec they have a piece of legislation that seems to have worked pretty good for for the province of Quebec in terms of you know requiring that the, the federal government to involve the province in these types of discussions. And and there's an appetite uh, across the uh, across all the all the premiers to have similar things and to have that have that discussion look honestly hopefully that's not possible or not required hopefully we can it's possible that we can have meaningful discussions with the federal government right. up front without the need for legislation so we still hold out hope for that but at the same time you know if we if we have to if we have to be more aggressive to protect the positions of our province and our citizens then uh, there's an appetite to do that at the table but but help me out here premier I, i've seen premier after premier after premier <coughs> uh in press conferences saying the federal government needs to do something about the affordability crisis they need to do something about the dismal state of housing supply in Canada. And here they are doing things with municipalities through the housing accelerator. And yeah, maybe they're late to the game, which has been a criticism there. But now uh, it feels like the premiers are also saying, pump the brakes. We want to be in there. Don't act on your own, despite the political pressure being put on them. I, I mean, how, how is that how it is? Never no, never, never pump the brakes. I'm not a pump the, pump the brakes guy. Uh, I'm an accelerator guy for sure, and and my colleagues my colleagues share that. But what we're saying is the most efficient way to do these things is to get you know get the, the partners together and work in a collaborative fashion uh, up front, not after the fact. There's no, there's just absolutely no point. Uh, in working with a municipality in Nova Scotia that has no, you know, no uh, real, real ability to execute unless the provincial government is involved in some way, funding or support, you know, and a, and a lot of these municipalities sometimes too, it's just there's they need support up front on the paperwork and the applications and stuff like that. So, so we need to be respectful. So I think if you if you put everyone at the table up front, you can get things done a lot quicker. That's certainly been my experience uh, in life, but certainly in the in the premier's chair, and uh, I, I don't see the value in trying to, to trying to cut around somebody and, and, and get some deal and then they have to come back to the province for some support. So look, 
Well, we're just asking, like, just let, we're, we're partners in this. We're all facing the same challenges. We're all trying to govern. Federal government's trying to govern. We're trying to govern. Our municipalities are, are trying to govern. We all want more housing. So let's just sit down at the table and do it together. There's no point in trying to do end arounds. There's no shortcuts to this stuff. It just takes, just takes work. So let's do it together. So, so, Premier, just as a final point, this was supposed to be a meeting all about health care and health care human resources. And, and I know you've talked, uh, I heard some of the Premier speaking about the need to deal with agency nurses and, and that sort of a challenge that that creates. I wonder if there's any agreement on, on increasing the supply of doctors, like funding more residency positions in Canada, something that's entirely within provincial authority and responsibility and one of the big impediments, uh, we're told, to getting enough family doctors. Are, are you willing to do that at the, at the Premier's level? Is, is there an agreement on that anywhere? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's, there was a robust discussion around health care. Uh, the health care summit was kind of a, a corner piece of this. But you get a bunch of premiers together. They want to talk about all the issues uh, that impact their, their, their citizens, as they should. So we, we've done that. But robust discussion on health care as well. Health care technology, health care innovation, sharing best practices. <clears throat> also, you know, talking about, about locums, about agencies, and how we can best, you know, support those working in the health care system. So there's lots of discussion about that and some very positive discussion. I, know I picked up a couple things from some of my colleagues that, that they're doing in their provinces that we're going to go and talk to our team about let's do that here too uh, and, and likewise and it was just a sharing of information Premier Team Houston thank you so much for your time today thanks for having me, really appreciate it The Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith joins me now Premier, welcome back to the show My pleasure, nice to talk to you uh, I don't think all premiers uh, in Halifax there agree with you to get rid of the carbon tax entirely, but there was a pretty broad consensus to remove it at least from all home heating sources. Uh, now that you've got allies at the premier's table, do you think the prime minister and his government will listen? I hope so. I mean, I think one of the things that you find when the premiers get together is that they just want fairness and everybody is very concerned about affordability. When we get into the winter season, it doesn't matter where you get your home heating source from. It's, uh, it's punitive to have the carbon tax levied on top of that. And if they can recognize that in Atlantic Canada, they need to give a reprieve for affordability purposes. It just makes sense that they would do the same for natural gas as well as for propane and other sources of, of home heating. So I hope they listen. Right. I mean, the argument from the federal government, is that, I mean, Atlantic Canada has a biggest share of people who burn oil, uh, but it's not just for Atlantic Canada. There's lots of people in Ontario who will benefit from this, from the north, and, and even in western Canada will get the break. So, I mean, do, do you accept the possibility of doing it for a specific class of heating and maybe not all classes of heating simply because of price? Well, you know, Premier Scott Moe reminded me of the, of the history of Western Canada. And Western Canada made the decision many decades ago to switch to natural gas as a cleaner source of, of heating fuel. And so now we're getting punished for it in the same way that we in Alberta made the decision to switch from coal to natural gas. And we're also getting punished for that as well. I think that's part of the problem is that when you, when you don't take into account the different geographic differences, the fact that different provinces made different investment decisions at different times, you end up with this kind of unfairness. And the, the way to make it fair is to acknowledge that they can continue with the heat pump program where it makes sense. It doesn't make sense in, in my province, but it may make sense in Atlantic Canada. But for now, they, they really should be acting fairly and taking the, the tax off of everybody's home heating. Because we're in a situation now where we've got an inflation crisis, this would be one of the best ways to deal with that. But, but you know, Premier, a lot of people are casting this as a national unity issue uh, and calling it divisive. And we're talking about three maybe 4% of, of Canadians who are getting a break here. It's less than a million people nationwide, many of them 
uh, pretty low income uh, and fixed income for sure. I mean, is it really a big disruptive national unity issue to help out a very small segment of the population that has lower than average incomes in a situation like this? Well, you have a federal government that has consistently said that there's not going to be carvos. I mean, certainly that's what they've been telling my province is we've been trying to uh, address some of the issues that we have about some of the unfairness and other policies. But it does seem like they're prepared to do carvos when it's politically expedient for them. And that, that's not the way that we should be running the country. I think what everybody is concerned about is that if they are setting this precedent, that it's okay to have differential policy in an area that votes for liberals but have not, not have the same policy elsewhere, then what else will it apply to? So I think this is part of the reason why you saw the premiers come together on this, is that if we're going to stick together on one thing, is that we want to be treated equally, we want to be treated fairly, and we want to be treated as partners in cooperative federalism, and the federal government isn't doing that. But, but, I, but I wonder, Premier, if treating everyone exactly the same is actually treating people fairly. When, when you look at, for example, national uh, emissions reductions, there are different allowances uh, in terms of what each province is expected to do to allow for their specific industrial bases and not to disproportionately punish different people. So we make regional differences when it comes to emissions targets to allow uh, people to, to go at different paces to, to avoid harm. What's the difference between that and, and, and helping out uh, people who burn the most expensive fuel in the country? Well, I don't know that I've ever seen this before on a federal tax policy. I mean, they don't charge a different fuel tax in British Columbia and Alberta and Atlantic Canada. They don't charge different personal income tax rates. They don't charge different corporate income tax rates. That, that's the whole point of the federal government arguing that something needs to be applied across the board is so that everybody is taxed in the same way. And they made that case towards the Supreme Court. Now, they, they basically blowed up their argument by saying that you can treat Quebec a little bit differently and you can treat this particular type of home heating a little bit differently. Um, I think it undermines their argument for why they would have a, a federal fuel tax in the, or a carbon tax in the first place. And that's why we, why we went to court over it. We think that these kinds of decisions should be left at the provincial level so that you can adjust for regional differences and that uh, our constitution supports that. So we may just have to revisit this decision if they're going to continue to, uh, to exercise that power in a political way as opposed to in a way that, that does treat every Canadian fairly. No, I, I get that as a political argument. I'm, I'm not sure how that would work as, as, as a legal argument, but, but uh, I, I, you know, we'll, we'll see where that goes. But, but on another point, today. Uh, the premiers expressed some discomfort with the way the federal government is doing things like the housing accelerator program. I think they have a deal with Calgary, for example, in, in your province. And talking about legislation that would stop municipalities and stop agencies from cutting deals directly with the federal government. Now, we've seen calls from premiers for the federal government to move on housing, to bail out transit systems in municipalities, for example, and do all kinds of things like that. Why threaten a legislative framework that would stop them from engaging directly with cities and agencies on, on issues that people want fast movement on? Well, the, the problem, I guess, I guess the approach that Quebec takes is exactly that, that they have to deal directly with the, with the Quebec government. And look what just happened. They just signed a $900 million deal, which allows for Quebec to make all of the decisions to treat its municipalities fairly. When you have a federal government picking and choosing among municipalities, that they may be working at cross-purposes to the kinds of things that we're trying to do in our own province, and they may end up also disproportionately only rewarding those provinces or those municipalities that have the capacity to manage through the application process, whereas we may have smaller municipalities that we want to encourage growth in. That's why they need to be working collaboratively with us. I mean, the Constitution does say that local works and municipal governments 
fall under provincial jurisdiction. I, I think it's disrespectful that the federal government keeps on coming into our provinces and doesn't work collaboratively with us. And I'm not the only one saying that. Every no, no. every provincial leader feels the same way. I, I know, but you know, I've also seen a lot of premiers and a lot of provincial leaders say the federal government needs to come in with money to, to bail out the Toronto transit uh, system, to give Toronto money to deal with uh, issues specific uh, with them. We, we see demands for the federal government to open its wallet for things that, that aren't in its area of responsibility because premiers say they shouldn't be left on the hook to do it. So it, it seems... I mean, is there a double standard when, when jurisdiction and, and constitutional responsibility is being applied here? Well, I, th- I think we've gotten used to the way the program has worked for infrastructure over the last 10 years. So there's essentially a, an allocation that's roughly equivalent, and then each province works with the federal government and a municipal partner to identify the projects that are the highest priority. That, that seems to be the fairest way to approach this. At the moment, we don't know if we're all going to be competing with each other between provinces. We don't know if we're going to get a fair allocation. We don't even know if they're going to work with us at all, or if they're, if they're going to be at all concerned about our priorities. And so that's a that's a problem because if you're if you are going to respect the constitution respect the division of powers the federal government should be partnering with us rather than working at cross purposes premier i wonder if i could just ask you a question about your convention that you had this weekend uh mm-hmm. there, there were some policy resolutions that were passed there that that uh, i have seen some some commentary and writing coming out of alberta questions for example on a policy to get rid of equity diversity and inclusion offices at universities or, or risk having their funding cut a pledge to support parental rights without even ex- really explicit explicitly defining what the policy would be behind that. These are potentially flashpoint issues. Are these going to become policy for your government? I mean, what do you say to the people who may look at this? Because I know often a party base doesn't necessarily push for things that a government can implement. How should Albertans and Canadians view these policy resolutions and what you might do with them? Well, we had almost 4,000 people attend our convention, which I was so amazed at because that shows that our grassroots is really excited about what we're doing and they're really excited about conservatism. So I think that that's a very a, a positive. The more people who participate in the democratic process, the better. The way our policy works is that our members pass policy that they think the government should do. So it's advice to us. We take that, we talk about it as a caucus and as a cabinet, and then we make decisions that are best for all Albertans. So we've been having this conversation in our caucus as we've watched what's been happening on these issues across the the country. And so I'll take this back to them and see if they think that we need to make any legislative changes or any policy changes. But that'll be made with um, at the at the caucus level with after a, a much more robust discussion. What, what's your view right now, though, on, for example, uh, equity, diversity and inclusion offices, uh, getting rid of those of post-secondary institutions uh, or risk losing funding? Is, is that an uh, appropriate level of, of intrusion into post-secondary institutions by, by a provincial government? Well, I'd have to, to talk with the post-secondary institutions and see if there's a problem. I mean, I can tell you one of the policies that we did pass was to make sure that there was free speech respected on campus. That's That would be our priority as a government, to make sure that every person has the ability to express themselves and that uh, they're, they're, they're not being shouted down. So I would say that uh, I haven't, uh, I, I don't know particularly what uh, the, the members have identified as being the exact problem there. It's part of the reason why we'd have to do more stakeholder consultation and also talk to our caucus members to see if there's a problem that needs to be solved. Okay. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, thanks so much for your time again today. Thank you. A conservative motion to pause the carbon tax on all home heating in Canada has failed to pass. All of Trudeau's MPs sold out their constituents and voted to make their home heating more expensive. 
Now, in a rare move, the NDP supported the conservative motion, but the Liberals, the Bloc, and the Green Party MPs all voted against it. And in all of that, Liberal MP Ken McDonald, we're going to show you him voting in a second, he's being accused of giving conservatives the finger during the vote. Look at this. Mr. Long. Mr. Longfield. Mr. McDonald Avalon. Mr. Morrissey. And the member from Avalon literally gave the finger to those Canadians as he stood to vote uh, for our motion, which was to give them a break and a reprieve on home heating costs. I scratched the side of my head with two fingers. So if they think it's one finger, that's up to them. They can take it how they like. Okay, a head-scratching moment there in the House. Also, after that, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev spoke to reporters about the bloc siding with the government on this non-binding motion. Given that the NDP was forced to flip-flop on Trudeau's plan to quadruple the tax, he had to find a new partner to keep him in power and avoid this non-confidence vote from passing. Okay, just another day in Ottawa. Lots to unpack there, so let's bring in the power panel to talk about this. Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. Vandana Cotter is a political consultant and a former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And here with me in the studio, Lisa Wright is a former Conservative Cabinet Minister, now the Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking with CIBC Capital Markets. And Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief, now writing for The Economist. Okay. Let's start with the vote. Um, it is not a non-confidence motion, as the leader of the opposition claimed. Lisa, this was a non-binding resolution. Uh, it wasn't, the government wasn't going to fall, so he made that claim. It wasn't there. But uh, the, he did get people to take sides, and the New Democrats sided with him. What's your reaction to what happened there today? So you say it's a non-confidence motion. I agree with you. It's, it's not a non-confidence motion. It's not a non-confidence yeah. motion. I agree with you on that. But in reality, it kind of is, because... The Liberal government has been elected many, many, many times on the notion of a carbon tax applied universally, and this week he backpedaled on a certain aspect mm -hmm. of it and really broke what was the, the ultimate promise he made. And the NDP saw it for what it was, voted with the Conservatives. So it may not have been a technical non-confidence motion, but I think it's a non-confidence motion nonetheless in the fact that you may not necessarily believe what the, uh, what the Liberals believe in mm -hmm. their own climate plans. So, Vandana, uh, confidence or not is a bit of a wedge uh, between the Liberals and the NDP, and the New Democrats did not vote with their confidence and supply partners. So where does it leave things after this happened today, even though it went down to defeat? I mean, I still think it shows that the caucus and the PM still feel like this is the right path forward, and the Greens and the Bloc agree. I mean, they all agree that climate change is important, and we have to make adaptions when they need to, in regards of what the announcement last week. But the NDP is focused on affordability, which is why they voted for with uh, with the uh, Conservatives there. But what I find interesting about Pierre Polyev is every time the government votes with another party, it's a dangerous coalition. But if he partners yeah. another party, you know, it's fine. So I think people should just really reflect on what he's trying to do there. Yeah, Brad, so the conservative NDP coalition yeah. uh, tried to take the carbon tax off home heating. But explain to me what Jagmeet Singh got out of this today. He voted against carbon pricing. The vote didn't pass, confidence or not. And six members of his caucus, I believe it is, abstained uh, in some cases because they say they couldn't sell it uh, back in the ridings they represent. So why did they do this and what did they get from it? Well, uh, it may come as some surprise, but there is some consistency here. That is, there is a long-standing belief in the New Democratic Party uh, that we shouldn't uh, have a price uh, or tax uh, home heating. This goes back many, many years. It goes back to private members' bills. When I was on the Hill uh, back in uh, 2008, 2009, we actually had a national television ad campaign uh, to build support for it. It's incredibly, uh, you know, 
it's incredibly dangerous to, to, to you know, tax uh, something so fundamental when so many Canadians don't have uh, the choice of an alternative uh, mode of, of heating their homes in very cold parts of this country. Uh, tomorrow there, there will be a motion uh, that is tabled by the NDP to remove the GST from all home right. heating on that. So it's incredibly consistent for the New Democrats uh, to vote to remove the financial barriers. Uh, that doesn't mean that we can't have incentives. The free home, uh, the free heat pumps uh, for uh, Atlantic Canadians that, the, that Trudeau won. We, we saw the Premier of British Columbia. We saw other Premiers in other jurisdictions saying that they would like the same uh, possibility for this. So it's a matter of helping all Canadians with removing some of the financial barriers to heating their homes when it, on, on, on things like oil and other forms and also providing incentives. It's, it's the, the issue that I think a lot of folks uh, up, up in Ottawa are having a difficult time. It's, it's a consistent policy for the New Democrats to help Canadians with home heating costs. Well, well yeah, but, but it was sales tax uh, on whatever it was, whether it was hydro, whether it was any mm-hmm. kind of clean or dirty source, right? It, yeah. it's like, but carbon pricing is an NDP policy, as I understand. It's just sales tax off of all energy, yeah, uh, and, and that'll be debated tomorrow. Yeah, and but you don't you don't have to have the same carbon pricing on all fuels, uh, irrespective of what it's for. There, there's no inconsistency to say you can price carbon when it comes to things like transportation, where perhaps there are alternatives uh, in your in your you know in your community. Whereas in, on home heating, a lot of people can't afford to go from oil uh, to to a heat pump just like that. So uh, incentives are needed along the way. But it, this is an issue of fairness. The Liberals have chosen to, to reward one uh, component of the uh, region of the of the country at the expense of, of others, and that's that's not that's right. And you can see that with the polls yep. talking with Coletto, that's not that's not helping the Liberals right now. In fact, no. it's 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 dividing the country. Well, yeah, I mean, Rob, I, I have to point out because I'll get yelled at if I don't. There's almost as many people in Ontario who burn oil as there is in as all of Atlantic Canada. As a no, no, I got, I got gotcha, you, I got gotcha, you, yeah. I got gotcha. you. But nominally, it's 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 roughly equivalent. There's actually more outside of Atlantic Canada. But Rob, one of the first assignments you sent me on when you were my boss here was to go to Vancouver to cover the first ministers meeting where they sat down to hammer out the consensus on climate and 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 carbon pricing and everybody that, got along wonderfully but they? they they got it done when you look at what the right. premier said today in halifax yep. you look at what's happening in parliament that consensus is fraying rapidly right now yeah and i think it's re- reflective of something that's important to note uh, people like lisa who've been in government uh, before will often tell you that a bad day in government is better than a good day in the opposition uh, well, the opposition, particularly the opposition leader, is having several good days. I would say several good months of late. And today was a very good day for the opposition leader. What, what did he do? Ball control in Ottawa, where they were voting on a motion that had everybody's attention. Yep. He had the attention of the first ministers in Halifax. He's had the attention of the country on housing, I'd say, mm-hmm. since the summer. And the government has been forced to, in effect, dance to Mr. Poiliev's tune now for a few months. Uh, he, he even tried to go further at the end of the day today by saying that the carbon tax would be the ballot box question. I think he's going too far there. Um, but that's telling you that he is intent on setting the agenda. And in the absence of the Liberals 
placing their own ballot box question forward for an agenda, uh, I would say that he's going to succeed if these are the issues that people are going to vote on unless the Liberals get in the game in a hurry. Right. And, and Lisa, I guess, you know, uh, if people are looking to invest in Canada, invest in energy, they might want to know what the government in waiting's climate policy will look like, and they might want to know maybe before the next election. Like, he was asked about this today, like, will you have a price on this even for industrial emitters? Mm-hmm. You know, never mind uh, individual emitters. He said, wait till the election, wait till the election. Don't they kind of need to get out in front and lay that out? I know former Prime Minister Harper said wait for the election, but investment decisions want some certainty, do they not? There's there's some things that you can glean, though, from from the positioning, and and it's pretty simple. It's the fact that the federal conservatives believe that the provincial governments get to have a say in the things that are within their jurisdiction, and that's where the Liberals have overstepped, and that's caused a lot of fraying in the country. And as a result, what I would say that you would see from a conservative government is really just giving the ability to the provinces to set their own rules, set their own prices. Mm. And yes, there's going to be a fight about whether or not that's enough, but clearly the Prime Minister has just proven that a carbon tax is not a carbon tax is not a carbon tax across the country. It's very different depending upon where you are, how you heat, how expensive it is, how cold it is, and, uh, and so on. Okay, I, I want to sh- show a couple of numbers from the Abacus data poll. We just had David Coletto on, and I want to show uh, a control room, if I can, first the top line number, the vote intention. Uh, Abacus was in the field after the government announced the carbon tax carve out on home heating oil, which applies nationally, but was primarily driven by concerns in Atlantic Canada. The Liberals are behind by 13 points, uh, according to these numbers. And then I want to show, if we can, just the leaders, the net favorability on, on, on what's happened here. And, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, if you look at the people who have a favorable impression of him versus a negative impression, he, he's at a net minus 24, uh, which is uh, a, a rough spot for uh, someone seeking a fourth mandate to be. And look up here, Polyev uh, Vandana, he's plus eight. He's got a net favorable rating. I don't know the last time I've seen that for a conservative leader, Vandana. How are liberals looking at these numbers, first reported uh, by our colleague Susan Delacorte in the Toronto Star? How do you see it? I don't think anyone's surprised by this, really, because, you know, this government after eight years, it's normal for governments to face these type of issues. And look what this government has been facing, you know, crises after crises, Donald Trump, a new NAFTA, a global pandemic, um, two international crises and, you know, an economic downturn. So, you know, the government and the prime minister has been the face of it. Um, as the main lead communicator, so people will get tired of it. But at the same time, you know, there's still a lot of time where the the PM can present, you know, what his vision is and what his solutions. And you touched upon it. You know, Pierre Polyev is really good at pointing out what the problems are. But we have yet to hear what the solutions are. And I think when it comes down to the ballot box question, you know, as much as people want change, you know, they'll want to know what the vision is for the country. And I think it's very clear what the PM has. And, you know, I read from David Coletto's polling that some people want to know what his vision is. And that's fair. You know, but he has time to share that and share that in this economic time, what his plan is for the government and how do we move forward as a country and globally. Um, So I think there's still I wouldn't count him out yet. Um, And I think there's a lot of time still to make that up. Okay, I, I want to look at, Brad, uh, these are some other numbers from, from, from David's poll on sort of like, I guess, the path forward, things that could change uh, to give the Liberals a chance uh, to come back. And, and essentially what it boils down to is the possibility of a new leader in the Liberal Party would be a net benefit uh, uh, for the Liberals, uh, people say. And if, for example, mortgage interest rates started to drop, if the Canadian economy approved, and then if they had 
more doubts about what a Pierre Polyev government might do. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with Mr. Trudeau or how people are going to feel about Pierre Polyev, but if they stick with the two-year election runway, there is a chance interest rates and the economy could be changing in a more positive direction. So how wide is the path for a liberal recovery here, or is it just a go path, Brad? Well, and the other thing you need to consider is that this is a path as of like late October, early November 2023. That mm-hmm. path will obviously change with time if interest rates change. Uh, that's, that's a possibility uh, that the path could also change. But I mean, you know, new leader. The, the, the challenge that political parties have when they poll their current leader with, with, with a potential new leader is that it's, it's usually theoretical, especially if no other yeah. names are put there. If you said, would you be more likely to vote for the Liberal Party of Canada if Trudeau was a leader or if you know, Mark Carney was a leader or if uh, Christian Friedland was a leader, whatever, that you have apples to apples. When you say a new leader, then people can impose a, a theoretical, you know, the, the number should be inflated because people then will impose uh, somebody better than Trudeau. But if they chose somebody that was actually worse than Trudeau, then the likelihood of them voting liberal actually right. goes down instead of up. So you got to one, one must be careful with that. Uh, one also must be careful about like, uh, you know, you know whether mortgage rates go. It could be something different uh, in 12, 18, or 22 months from now that replaces mortgage that that Trudeau doesn't have any control over. Could be you know calmer waters globally. Could be you know things like uh, international supply chain. Whatever. Yep. These things, none of which Trudeau is in charge of. The real thing, though, if you take a look at some of these other tables in Coletto's poll, are things like people that even voted liberal last time are tired of them, don't yeah. believe he's got a vision for the country, uh, not not in it anymore, doesn't have that fight or passion. Those are things that he does have control over. And so, you know, you know, last week we were talking about Percy Down, the senator, saying he should take a walk in the snow in Feb. He should actually take a walk in the leaves in November to figure out whether or not he's going to put that vision together because now is the time to start... Uh, offering that to Canadians, right. not waiting for this to solidify. And Coletto mentioned that. He said the problem that they have is this is the fifth month now where the Tories have a double-digit lead and Trudeau's negatives keep sinking. The time to turn it around is not in t- 24 months. It's actually now. Right. And, and look, and, and everybody at home saying, oh, you're overreacting to a poll two years out. Yes, it's potentially two years before an election. But this is the reality in the here and now. And Rob, this is the, the, the period in which they have to make some decisions, whether they make a change as a liberal government or whether they just change their policy and approach and their communication strategy and all of that. Where do you see it? And I, I can guarantee you, David, that, that, uh, that Mr. Coletto isn't the only one polling. I can guarantee you that there are people in the Liberal Party who are polling night after night after night to find out if the Prime Minister is a drag or a potential help to his party. If he's the guy like, like Stephen Harper who can't win but might leave the party in very good shape in terms of number of seats right. and money in the bank after an election. Uh, that, that work is probably being done and I imagine that the Prime Minister will make his decision as to whether he really stays or goes based on what that research is, although guys in this position are often very stubborn about uh, hanging on to the job. But I, 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 I think that Brad is absolutely right. If he's going to, even, even if he's going to go, he's got to get in the game. It mm. just doesn't look like he's in the game. The game is now being controlled by Pierre Poilievre. Uh, and uh, the Liberals have to decide what they're going to do before a budget, during a budget, their time is running out. Um, you know, the, the campaign, if, if we're going in, into the, the fourth year of a liberal mandate, the campaign really begins next year. 
Yeah, and, and as Brad says, a lot of global factors can change, and they're outside of Justin Trudeau's control, though yeah. I watch Question Period every day, and apparently it's all him. But, you know, you know, Lisa, one of the things you, you talk to liberals about in terms of whether he should mm-hmm. stay and what he should do, a lot of people point to his capacity as a campaigner, and mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau is incredible on the campaign trail, like mm-hmm. to sustain the energy and pace for five, six weeks that he does. And they feel he could go up against a guy like Polyev, who may be the first conservative leader to sort of match that energy and tenacity. And if it's not Trudeau, who the heck can go up against him for five, six weeks in that sort of an arena? All I know is that when he put the numbers up, 39, 26, 18, 5, that's the 2012 majority with the conservatives. Mm. Like, if I saw those numbers in southwestern Ontario, I'd be ecstatic because the splitting between the liberal and the NDP. So it may not be as much about trying to make sure that they downgrade Pierre they're going to have to start separating from their coalition partner a little bit more and have to pivot and say, if you want to stop Pierre, you got to go with me. And well, that's really what the play is going to have to be in the ridings in Ontario. I, I, I thought we agreed that after today it's the conservative NDP coalition. <laughs> oh. Vanya, I'm just kidding. Vanya, just give you the, the, the last word on this because we've got to say goodbye after this. I, I mean, what, what do you think uh, the Liberals can do? What do you think they will do? I think they're going to focus still on affordability and on the key messages that people are focused on in terms of, you know, their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. I think also you're going to see the PM engaging with people more. And, you know, you said it yourself, like he is the best campaigner. He can outpace anyone. He can go from a Monday to a Diwali event to a senior's home, et cetera, and get energy from people. And, and people can feed off that energy. So I think you're going to see that. You're going to see them, you know, reset a bit more. The problem is they keep getting these crises. But I think what you're seeing that despite the crises happening, you're seeing them still focus on things like affordability. And you're going to see that in the long run, I don't think the liberals are, you know, they're not naive to what's happening and they're going to be focused on winning the next election. Okay, uh, gang, we covered a lot of ground, but we're out of time. I want to thank you all. To the, thanks to the Power Panel, Rob Russo, Lisa Raitt, Vanda Nakata, and Brad Levine. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.